You're listening to the Binge Media Podcast Network on BingeMedia.net. And now, the Binge Aftertaste. So you're a woman now. And God made Eve from the rib of Adam. And what, Karen? Say it. Oh, Mom. Say it. Talk to me. Say it. Please, just talk and to me. And Eve was weak. Just, just talk to and me, please. I just, sin I just want you to talk to me. Was a sin of intercourse. And the first sin was a sin of intercourse, Mama. Say it. Why didn't you just? Why didn't you tell me, Mama? God Mama, please. It, with a it curse, hurts. And the curse it was hurts. a curse of blood. I'm not gonna say that. That's not even in the Bible. It doesn't say that <gasps> anywhere. Help this little girl see the sin of her days and ways. Show her she's made innocent. The curse of blood would not have come upon her as it did upon Eve. I'm not Eve, Mama. I didn't sin. You showered with those other girls. You had lust-filled thoughts. Everyone has to shower, Mama. Everyone. No, That's no, just the rules. Different. You must be different because he can see I don't see want you. to be different, Mama. I want to he be like them. I want to be just like them. And he will punish you. <gasps> I will not let that come down upon you. Welcome to the Binge Movie Aftertaste Carrie Retrospective Series. You have a big week coming up. A big month, actually. Probably the biggest month of your lives. Join Garrett. I have a dog. Matt. Turn around, drop trail. And Adam. Do they have anything good? Like some garbage? You like garbage? Oh yeah, Shirley Manson, she rocks. As they look at the four different iterations of Stephen King's very first published novel. This isn't over by a long shot. Come back periodically as one by one the boys go through each film adaptation of the popular author's work in the order of its original publication. That's great news! Where does everyone come down on the quality of King's work? They're just gonna trick me again. Why is Adam watching Carrie for the very first time? I don't want to upset you. And what is Matt dreading the most about this 100-plus movie retrospective. <laughs> Look at this! What? <laughs> All these pigs! Find out the answers to these questions and many more, all coming up courtesy of Binge Media. And things are going to change around here. The Rage, Carrie 2, released March 12, 1999. Budget on this was $21 million. Box office, $17.8 million. And this is directed by me and Matt's friend, Kat Shea. The movie that was out when me and Adam weren't talking and the movie that pretty much brought me and Matt together is what we're discussing today. <laughs> this is going to be an interesting podcast. I am once again joined by Matthew Goudreau. What's up, Matt? How you doing, sir? Well, to quote another person who had a famous movie in 1999, it's like poetry, it rhymes. <laughs> and the very excited to be on the Stephen King retrospective, <laughs> Adam Punch. What's up, my friend? How are you? Uh, better be better. <laughs> <laughs> nah, but I'm, I'm, you know what? We got through the first one. It, it only gets better from here, right? That's what's supposed to happen, right? <laughs> uh, <laughs> a few things before we get to the movie. Because, trust me, the plot's going to take maybe a half hour to get through, so <laughs> we've already done this plot. So, I mentioned last week, this was a movie, and I kind of mentioned in the intro, that pretty much brought me and Matt together. The reason why is because when I started this show, I was right in the thick of the movie industry. I was interviewing guests from all over the place. 
And that was what this show was about. We were making movies. Me and Jason Morris were making movies, so we would talk about that. We'd get on the air and talk about what the progress was. And those, those were fun shows to do. But there was a time when I was just like, I kind of want to take this show to a different direction. I want to kind of take it opinion-based and not really be proper with people. I was moseying in that way. And I knew Jason, as busy as he is, Jason's still a friend of mine. You know, we still talk, and he's a great guy. But I didn't think I could have really have a future in doing that kind of show with him. We tried the Star Wars retrospective, and lo and behold, we haven't been able to keep up with it because the guy's just too damn busy. So I started looking for somebody I could trust to be a cohort in this deal. I book Kat Shea, the director of the movie we're going to talk about tonight, and I'm excited to talk to her, but I needed a second guy to be on that. I needed somebody on there with me. I like different people to bounce different things off each other. I, this, that's just the way I like doing things on this podcast. Jason wasn't available. He said, I can't do it. I was freaking out. Matt, I knew from Adventure Amigos. I said, Matt, jump on the air with me one time. I need you to help me with this interview. He said, Okay. He watched the movie. We did the interview. Now, if you go back and listen to the interview, which I didn't, I had technical difficulties up the ass. I had my computer going out, and Matt pretty much carried that entire interview. But I knew from that show on that this was the guy I wanted to do this format with because he was quick. He was talking like he had grown up with this movie, and he knew it backwards and forwards. And I could tell Cache was pretty impressed with you. And I knew at that point, I was like, this is the guy I want. That's pretty accurate, right, Matt? I mean, that's pretty much the way we got together was how was through that show. Yeah, especially the part where you talked about how I carried you. It was a great segue for the next six-plus years we were working together. So. Oh, you fucking asshole. <laughs> I give you compliment after compliment, and you fucking just stab me right in the goddamn front. Not back, front. I, 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 but in all seriousness, it's so funny that I also did not go back to listen to that because I, I just haven't had the time. And to be honest, I was kind of scared, too. Garrett and I, yeah. in the six-plus years we've been doing this, I did look at the date. It was March of 2015, so we've been at this for almost as long as Binge has been around. We're pretty close. And I mentioned this would have been some retro we did quite some time ago. I said, it takes time to build camaraderie with somebody. And as much as Garrett boost my ego. I really felt like I was out of my depth, so I felt like I had to do as much prep work as I could for what I thought was just going to be a one-off appearance. And to be totally honest, I thought it was going to be. Like, you know, it's a favor to a friend that, you know, kind of got me my start on another site, and lo and behold, it would have been almost a year later we did the Terminator retro, which was the very first one we did. And here we are six-plus years later, still going strong, and a lot's changed in the years since you and I have started together. But, yeah, I never thought this movie, of all movies, would have so much meaning to you and I. A, a sequel to a Stephen King movie that was shit upon at the time. Stephen King didn't even fucking write. This is the movie that brought us together. Not Raiders of the Lost Ark, not Citizen Kane, not The Godfather, it's The Rage Carry 2. <laughs> the, oh, the irony. That was how that all came about. The fact that I had you as a host, I knew I had to get somebody trustworthy and able to do this in order to be able to convince them, yes, I can do this format, and you've worked out pretty well. Now, the intro um, guy, on the other hand. Oh, yeah, he's a piece of shit. Don't even get me started on that guy. <laughs> uh, all right, so let's go back a little bit. 1992, I got a book for my birthday, and I'm sure Adam remembers this. I got a book called The Stephen King Encyclopedia. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I was reading this thing 
all the time. This book had interviews with people in his life. They had interviews with other writers. It had obviously looks at his movies, looks at his books and everything and anything in the books that has, you know, it has people, places, things. And for those that don't know, I'm going to butt in right here. For those that don't know, Garrett, for the decades that I've known him, two things you could always count on Garrett to be carrying around, one in each hand. Leonard Malton's Book of the Year. No shit. <laughs> Reading the whole fucking, like, four-inch thick tome every year. And a Stephen King book, without fail. That's like 80 pounds of weight you're carrying in your backpack. Like, I'm surprised. Dude, why do you think I was so good at football? <laughs> I thought when I met you, you were going to look like fucking Quasimodo, hunched over and shit. Just based on how much, like, because it's bad enough you say the Leonard Malton film guide, because those you could, you could beat a man to death with those. But he promised something, Stephen King, who's uh, notorious for having some books that are incredibly lengthy, an encyclopedia about the man who writes long books. (laughs) Yes, I was a big fan. But when I got that book for my birthday, I opened it up. The very first page I turned to, and my parents both looked over my shoulder, was like, what the fuck is that? Was a page detailing Carrie the musical. Yes, (laughs) they did a musical based on Carrie. They did. Starring Betty Buckley, the gym teacher from last week's film. This thing lasted three days on Broadway. <laughs> yes, three days. And it is considered one of the biggest flops ever. It did have the original writer, or the script writer, Leonard Cohen. He wrote the musical. And, you know, they had some pretty big people behind it. Complete failure. There are clips available on YouTube of this musical. It is worth looking up. I did it right before this podcast. It is some glorious glorious shit and matt as somebody who has been pushing to do musicals on this show (laughs) that is something i think you should definitely look up well let's see i can't believe they made a bigger debacle i thought spider-man was like the most notorious like botched musical i i never even heard of this oh my god it is you know how big of a disaster you say cats the movie is it's like that like it's (laughs) It's pretty bad. Wow. So, all right, let's get to, let's get to this week's movie. So that's leading up to 23 years later, folks. 23 years later, they decided to do a sequel to Stephen King's first book, first movie. Now, Adam, you said something last week that really hit a nerve with me. <laughs> and, and there's a reason I kept quiet about it until this podcast, because I wanted to reveal to you that you said that the movie that we were going to talk about this week seemed like a spec script molded into a Carrie sequel. Mm-hmm. And you are absolutely right. <laughs> absolutely right. Figures. <laughs> Figures. Yeah. They had a, another director attached, a guy by the name of Robert Mandel. And due to the quote-unquote creative differences, God, you hear that all the time, which pretty much means it could be a whole variety of things. He was off the project, and two weeks before they were supposed to film, here comes Kat Shea. Now, Kat Shea at this point, she was an actress. She was in uh, one of the Psycho sequels. Uh, Number I think three. It was three. Yeah, she was in three, but she had just done a movie that at that time I loved, a movie called Poison Ivy, <laughs> starring Drew Barrymore. Oh, boy. Yeah, that was hers. So she could do angst. She mm-hmm. could do it. She, and uh, honestly, that's a movie I haven't revisited since I was in my teens. I remember really liking it. I don't know if it was because I had a crush on Drew Barrymore and liked seeing her naked or if it yes. was because it was... <laughs> nope, yes. Okay, all right, there's no or in the or about that. So I'm scared to revisit that one, but I did really like that at the time. And she came in with two weeks before filming, and she turned out what we're going to talk about tonight. Now, Matt, was your first exposure to this movie, the podcast that we did, had you seen it before that? Yes, it was. I had never never seen it. I didn't know it was a thing at the time. 
because when I looked up, like, list of Stephen King movies, it technically only listed the ones that were direct adaptations of his work, not necessarily sequels, unless there was a, a sequel that was actually written, like, technically Doctor Sleep nowadays, which doesn't account for the eight Children of the Corn movies that I also did not know existed. Uh, Eleven. Until we put this retro together. But it was tough for me to actually go back and find this because to do the rewatch for this recording, it's not streaming on Amazon. It's damn sure not on Netflix. So I bought the... Let me look at this box. 88 films put out a Blu-ray of this not too long ago. So I went out and actually bought this. Wow. Uh, and I couldn't find it, it's it's very tough to find. Yeah, like, it is. On the DVD, it's not like I can run to Walmart and pick it up, so mm-hmm. I I kinda had to I had to dig into some deep crevices to 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 pull this up and get an actual viewing in. I, I ordered the D V D off Amazon myself. I watched the I ordered the Blu ray off it myself, so I streamed it. Adam, sir, how'd you watch this? <laughs> Illegally, I'm guessing. No, no. I uh, I streamed this. It was it was available, at least when I watched it. Uh, I streamed it on Tubi. Oh, okay. Oh, that's so. I got fucked. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you did. <laughs> uh, hey, we, yeah, like was... te- we like having hard copies of these movies. That's We always say that. Yeah, Matt. Matt got fucked hard copy. <laughs> <laughs> I, was, I was just, I was looking, you know, when I was searching for it to figure out how I could watch it, um, it just happened to come up that way. And I was like, oh, sweet, Tubi, be watching it for free. I had ads every, you know, 20 minutes yeah. or so. But other yeah. than that, yeah, I was kind of pleased that I didn't have to fork out three ninety nine to help Jeff Bezos. Now, I, I spoke to Matt. He had watched this as research for the podcast that we did together. I don't think you and I were talking at this time. I had seen this with a mutual friend of ours at that time. I actually did go to theaters to see this. Yes, I did. And it was amongst my favorite of 99 at that time. I lo- I really enjoyed this movie at that time. I said that on that podcast, if I seem to remember correctly. Where do you stand on The Rage Carry 2? Had you even heard of this before? Yeah, I think you did the intro to that show me and Matt did, so you probably had, but you obviously hadn't seen this before with this retro, right? Nope, I'd never seen it before. I'd heard of it. I remembered the trailer, and that was pretty much it. I knew that it existed, but being that I'd never seen Carrie, seeing yeah. Carrie 2 kind of wasn't, wasn't exactly going to happen. Um, mm-hmm. Though it might have been really fun to try to <laughs> backtrack and, you know, piece together Carrie from, from the rage. Uh, but no, mm-hmm. um, going into this, I was like Carrie White. I was a virgin at the beginning of this, and uh, yeah, my first time. There you go. Nice callback, sir. Yeah, for the record, I did find Garrett's list of his favorite movies of 1999. The Rage Carry 2 is actually number three behind, uh, let's see, Wild Wild West and Phantom Menace. So, one of the landmark movies. All right, everybody, it's been fun. I appreciate yeah. you. Uh... <laughs> Much like the characters in this movie, I have my own book of secrets. <laughs> this movie was the beginning of our fruitful friendship and it is the end of our fruitful friendship <laughs> alright we're going to go ahead and uh, jump right in here so we're seeing some credits amongst a bunch of red paint and a voice telling somebody to stay away from their daughter amongst some black and white flashbacks a couple things here one Matt didn't the music of this remind you of something from one of those Elm Street sequels we did last year <laughs> are you talking about the compositions or the soundtrack the composition, like in the very beginning here, these opening credits. Oh, like There's this little piano theme playing. Yeah, it reminds me of the opening of Dream Master. You know, like the tracking shot up to the house, and it, it feels it feels stock. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's boy. Let's stop the review. That's the perfect review of this film. You know, this whole black and white thing, it sets up a big problem I have with how Cat Shea directs this movie. It's almost like Zack Snyder in slow motion. It's her one trick, and she's going to use it to death in this thing. And not necessarily where it should be. Yeah. Yep. She definitely employs the slow-mo, almost music video type of editing that was really popular at the time, where there's a lot of freeze frames, a lot of slow motion. There's a lot of black and white photography, which is one thing I didn't remember from... Mm -hmm. Watching this the first time, parts of this movie almost feel like what you would see in a Soundgarden music video around the time. Yeah, yeah good call. Yeah. Or Garbage, who gets uh, mentioned in the movie. <laughs> yeah. yeah. There's a video by Stabbing Westward called Shame, where a woman's getting stalked like, through a stairwell that looks just like this. So, yeah, definitely music video. So the little girl, she starts pleading with her mom, who eventually is taken away to a loony bin, and this at least sets up the rest of the film. We then hear a, a shocking noise, and I mean one of those types of noises they use when the Mountie would use his shock stick in the 90s. It's all <laughs> in, the, in the soundtrack as she runs through the house with windows pounding. Uh, what do you guys think about this opening here? Definitely not Carrie getting pelted with tampons, is it? No, but there's still red paint, which evokes blood. And I think this is also a commentary on the religious component because I think it was the Hebrews who put blood on their doors so their firstborns wouldn't get killed. I'm not a theologist. You can put the pieces together, everyone. I paint on doors something to do with Christianity. I think that's the way they tie it into this, this opening. She's not a religious zealot. She's just, I don't know what the word is, insane. Wacky. Wacky, yeah. Wacko. Yeah. Definitely not Carrie's mother. But that will be a compliment I am going to give this film is... They're not going for the same old, same old. And going back to this, and I hadn't seen it since that podcast we did either, Matt. I was scared that after having watched that first film, thinking, oh, it, all they did was retread that first movie, which they don't. They take some steps in order to make it seem different. And this does make it seem different. She's not a religious zealot. She is just a crazy person. Adam, you're seeing this for the first time. Did this grab you at all? What it struck me as is it, it came across very 90s and very late 90s. I can't say I was impressed by it. It did kind of date it to me in the same way that one of my guilty horror pleasures, D. Snyder's Strangeland. There's mm. no doubt when you're watching that, the era that it's made in. And that's just mm. what I felt here at the beginning. Like, okay, I know when this movie was made just based on what I was seeing here. I didn't hate it. And if you listen to last week's and hear the way that I was kind of pulled out right away and I couldn't get into it, I was at least into this movie more from the get-go. So Adam touched on the really the core of why this movie got made, because as Garrett mentioned, there's a 23-year gap. So why did they wait until the late 90s? Well, first reason is that teen horror, in particular, had a tremendous revival Huge in, in the mid to late 90s, with Scream in particular. Then you get all the knockoffs like Urban Legend, I Know What You Did Last Summer. So that's part one. Part two is that the 90s was nostalgic for the 70s in the way that the 2010s is nostalgic for the 80s because it was all about bringing back icons with a new coat of paint, like Halloween H2O was updating it for the 90s in a post-Scream environment. Yeah. Uh, we talked about what's Kramer's new nightmare, bringing that into a, a 90s cult of personality, celebrity stalkers. So playing into some real-life components, and that component also ties into this movie in the fact that it is heavily based on a incident in, like, 92, 93 at a high school. Oh, yeah. 
So th- there's a lot of pieces at work that I think justify why this movie was made in 1999, and it shows not just because of the soundtrack, which, holy crap, <laughs> the, the soundtrack for this movie, you can definitively tell this was made after Scream because it's all, like, alternative. Oh, yes. All alternative yeah. rock. Plays like one of my iTunes playlists, actually. <laughs> <laughs> of course it does. <laughs> Spoiler alert, there is none of this music in the intro or outro to this podcast. Yeah, that's a great call. That incident you're talking about, I was going to mention it later, but it, it's called the uh, Spur Posse. And I remember those articles very well because I was playing football around that time. Mm-hmm. These are just a bunch of assholes who did exactly what the guys in this movie do. They were making girls a set of points in their little books and they got caught people were doing things in order to get the points that they shouldn't have been doing and if you want to learn more go ahead and google it but be sure to take your shower before and after because these guys were just complete fucking dickheads and that's what they're basing this on yeah and the real life story is even more horrific they were raping people that were like as young as 10 it's really disturbing when you do the the actual legwork and read about this shit yeah that's why i said the google it is because you're going to find stuff that they did that goes way beyond even what these fuckers do in this movie so we cut to quote unquote modern day. We see our main we see our main character Rachel wake up and she go through her normal routine. You know what we have there though? One right before when her mother's getting taken away to Arkham's. We talked last week about cribbing the music score, flat out ripping off the music score. I swear I heard a good three seconds of tubular bells mm. while we were in that house at the beginning. Like enough that I stopped and went, did I just did okay? But it felt right to kind of rip off another iconic music score yeah and, but then this dog which we see here to kind of show the, the passage of time just as well as anything else you guys just discussed another series did you not get buster from toy story did you not see that dog oh, growing yeah. up because <laughs> we get him as a puppy suddenly it's however long it is you know yeah. 16 years later that same dog is there <laughs> wow the rage carry too was just compared to toy story yeah, uh, the only comparison that we will make to a recent aftertaste we have done in 2021. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I did actually. That, that's a that's a good call. Um, and we're going to be seeing a lot of this dog in the course of this mo- in this movie. So we cut to quote unquote modern day. We see our main character Rachel. She wakes up and she goes through her normal routine. A couple of things here. One. Sissy Spacek was so painful to look at in her performance last week. And by the way, I mean that in the nicest way possible due to her Mm -hmm. performance, not her appearance. So if this is going to be our new Carrie 23 years later, shouldn't she be, I don't know, more of an outcast? She's kind of hot. I I think her her get-up, her more gothic aesthetic, that is an outsider. But Gary, you also got to remember in in the late 90s, it was all about this generation purposely wanted to be outsiders. Yeah, you're right. Well, it wasn't entirely they were cast like the 70s where they were cast aside because of cliques and bullies and shit. A lot of the, these rebels, it, it was voluntary on their part, and I see that with this with this main character, who I swear to God, she looks like if Asa Butterfield put on a black wig. <laughs> oh, wow, man, my dick just got confused. While I was in high school, my dating kind of ran the gamut of different types of girls and. Looks and styles and rah-rahs to goth and ethnicities and everything else. But, yeah, if we're going to compare attractiveness, yeah, I'd, I'd absolutely be asking out Rachel. But to Matt's yeah. point, yeah, she doesn't feel like the outcast. 
that Carrie was. Yeah, and they are doing alliteration here, you know, Rachel, Carrie. They're doing the whole two-syllable thing, but they're doing similarities, but at the same time, like I said, Cat Shea had this chick. This movie was in production for two, three years, and she had this girl in mind the entire time. Mm-hmm. She saw this girl from the beginning, but... I don't know. I look at her and I'm just like, she's not as much of an outcast. But I think Matt's right. I think it's more of a different aesthetic. It's more of a late 90s aesthetic that they're going for here. I was just kind of taken aback by the fact that this girl, she's being looked at as somebody who you wouldn't want to sleep with. And if I were, you know, 16, 17, God, I would would take this girl in a heartbeat. It's just one of those things that was different than what we got before. I keep my distance. <laughs> well, <laughs> you probably go for it. Never mind. We'll, we'll talk about these guys here in a little bit. So <laughs> Rachel's getting in arguments with her foster parents, talking about her mom's progress in the loony bin. We then meet Mina Savari in the same year. She melts Kevin Spacey's heart in American Beauty as she brags to her best friend Rachel about doing it last night. Again, when I think outcast, I don't think 1999 Mina Savari. <laughs> No, not at all. Though her I find much more awkward looking than Rachel. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. Man, I I had the biggest crush on her back then. This is the one that I think is a tougher pill to swallow as far as being on the outs in high school popularity. Um, And Garrett, you're also forgetting she was in American Pie, too. So, like, 1999 was, like, the highest of highs for Mina Savari. And then I don't know what happened. (laughs) Yeah. Then she did Day of the Dead, which I covered a few years ago. Like, what happened to this girl, man? She had such a future. But I guess that, you know, goes with bad decisions and whatnot. So we see some jocks talking about how many points each girl is. I have to admit, guys, I I do kind of like this inverse. If the last movie was about mean girls, let's make this about asshole guys. It's an obvious traversal. A lot of the decisions in this movie, it's just doing the opposite of what the first one did as far as... The ins and outs. They keep a lot of stuff the same. The beats are pretty much identical where it's, you know, you got the asshole group that's traumatizing the main character. You got the one friend who's trying to be appeasing to both sides but may or may not actually like them. But all these being considered, I think this movie dates horribly from an aesthetic perspective and certainly from a music perspective. But in a post-Me Too world and a hashtag Time's Up and especially with stuff like 13 Reasons Why mm-hmm. being really popular... I think this movie's subtext and message is actually more resonant now than it is in 1999. When I meet the guys, based on who they are and the way that they're talking, the only issue I have is you know who's going to be an asshole and who's not. Kind of throughout, you have not Jonathan Taylor Thomas from Home Improvement here. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I had to look him up like, no, it's not JTT, it's the other one. No, well, that's the connection, because he was in Tokyo Drift here. And then, you know, I I know that Jeremy London's not going to, you know, I'm like, okay, he's not going to end up being a complete bad guy in the end. He's a redhead, because it, it was Jeremy London. They kept trying to push this guy for a couple years. Jason um, London. Jason London. They were trying sorry, to push Jer- <laughs> Yeah, sorry, J- yeah. Jeremy London is an asshole. Jason London. <laughs> um, but yeah, with Jason London. It, so I know that he's not going to be completely bad. But then... um I have him written down as um, not Kevin Dillon. It's pretty clear this guy's just going to be a dick throughout the entire movie. I don't hate it because it's also, like with me, they're archetypes, but they're kind of resonant. Like, yeah, I knew these guys. I wasn't the greatest guy, and I got around, and yeah, I, I could have been hanging out with these guys and been a dick as well. So as much as they're kind of cookie cutter, and Matt, as you said, it, you know, we're going to inverse so much of the other ones, but it plays, and especially plays in the 90s kind of horror movies, because I think we've seen these groups in 
The Faculty and Miss Tingle and a couple of movies by this point. We see another class being conducted in a Carrie film as Rachel tells the whole class that she doesn't believe in love. And then Jason London picks her up with his answer. This kind of is reminiscent of the Tommy scene in the first Carrie film. Um, Although Jason London in this movie is not exactly as liked as Tommy was in that one. Mm -hmm. So we cut to Mina Savari. She's walking through a dark abandoned hallway in a high school... Okay. <laughs> she uh, she walks up the stairs and jumps right off the roof. And in effect that I have to admit, kind of got me. This was kind of brutal, the way she hits this windshield. Cache does a pretty good job of filming that. But shouldn't we have seen the moment when she made the decision to do this? Or something. Even yeah. Because, yeah, I rewound twice to see what the hell I just missed. <laughs> twice. And yeah. at least if you're not going to tell us exactly that there's something more. Like, I do think, you know, she opens her locker, but I don't know, have her look at a note and then some kind of emotion. You know, she's emotionless through the whole thing. Even if show something and then let her just go dead calm. And, hey, there's another one. Dead calm and let her walk <laughs> up and, and off. But, yeah, I will say the way that it's shot and that jump off or almost just the walk off the roof is, oh, shit. Like, it gets you. I can't believe this is the fucking movie we're going to disagree on. God. Um, I, ne- I never win every single time, but I'd like to have everything I'm about to say stricken from the record. <laughs> I-, I think this works because I kind of read this as Cat Shea doing a parody of the Nightmare on Elm Street type of teen death sequences where they're off by themselves into the real world. It looks like everything's relatively normal. There's no Freddy Krueger pulling strings and dropping people. And it's shot almost dreamlike so that when the actual shock happens, it's all about the reactions of the people who see it. I don't think it's supposed to be read from her perspective. It's supposed to be from the people who watch this, which I'm pretty sure that car that got destroyed had a bigger picture in the yearbook than Mina Savar's character. Just say. <laughs> Jesus. We then cut to Sue Snell. Hey there, Amy Irving. Now, they did try getting Sissy Spacek. Cat Shea wanted her pretty bad, but... Sissy Spacek, she read the script, and she was like, no, I'm not going to do it. So then they asked to use her likeness in the scenes that they're going to flash back to later, and she still said no. And then Cat Shea kind of spliced some scenes together, said this is what we're going for. And so Sissy Spacek, I think Sissy Spacek, in order just to get them off her back, said, okay, go ahead, whatever. And so they cut her a check, and that's how she's in this movie. But they didn't have to do that with Amy Irving, because here she is. Didn't she get enough of that Spielberg money in the divorce? Why is she here? <laughs> She did say that she got Brian De Palma's blessing to be in this. De Palma was just like pretty much what John Carpenter told Alan Howarth when he was going to do the scores to Halloween 4. He's just like, yeah, go ahead. Just make all the money you can. Just go. But this is, I don't know. It was weird seeing her here. What did you guys think of seeing Sue Snell, a.k.a. Amy Irving, in this? For myself, I didn't remember enough of who she was. You know, I, I'd only seen Carrie once. So it took me a moment to realize it was the same character. Paused it, looked it up. At that point... I'm good with it. I mean, you figure somebody is going to tie in somehow. And if it's not, Matt, you talk about Nightmare on Elm Street. What do you have? You have somebody from somewhere carrying over into the next movie, into a sequel. And to me, that's what I, the feeling I got with it here. But I don't mind it. I do think that somebody who played a part in being responsible for a fucking school getting burned down, working at a school might, <laughs> might bring up some concerns with the PTA. But other than that, yeah, sure. Why not? Gee, you think she'd at least change her name. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> or move 
from a logistic perspective, she's the only person who could actually be in this movie from the original without using archival footage. Unless mm-hmm. they found some bullshit contrived way of explaining that Tommy survived, which would have been like, it's like Han showing up in Fast 9 and be like, are you fucking kidding me? <laughs> An alien showed up and he found this superhero outfit and he put it on. <laughs> <laughs> I do believe that this is where this character would be. Adam, you say, you know, wouldn't she have moved? But helping other high school students as a catharsis, I can see that. Yeah, I don't rub up against it. Yeah, yeah doesn't bug me. So Sue talks to Rachel, who reveals that Lisa was so happy this morning, and she has no idea how this could have happened. They explore her locker, complete with a Marilyn Manson 90s poster, as the guy who slept with Lisa reveals that he told her that she was a set of points and nothing else. He also reveals that Lisa took a photo of themselves that night. Hmm, I wonder if this is going to come back. Hmm. We see Rachel working at a photo mat. Remember these, Adam? (laughs) I remember these. Not only that, I fucking worked photo. Like I'm like, woohoo, back to my film developing days. That's right, you did. You did yep. with my mother. Boy, there's some photo stories. Ca- Rayleigh's photo. You know what? Photos, Mrs. Collins. You want to talk about tying all together here? <laughs> she, it's she develops. She develops the set picture as Jesse pulls up, and they try to buy the pictures off of her. She won't budge, even proclaiming herself to be a dyke, and they take off. So were her and Lisa in a relationship? That was my question. I could see them. Go, I mean, at that point, at their eight, see, it's, it's hard to believe that they're only 16 or so. But, I mean, I knew girls like that in high school that were that close. And you either assumed it or they said they were to keep guys away that were assholes. But mm-hmm. you could definitely take it that way. And that would be a one telling of it. And I think it works just as well. I don't think the length of time or whether or not they were in a committed relationship has any bearing or changes the predicament he's in. So, like, to me, it doesn't matter. Rachel reveals in an interview that Lisa told her that she lost her virginity the night before and Eric was the one who did it. And this is when we get the flashback to Carrie via Sue Snell, a flashback, again, that Kat Shea really had to fight for. Adam, what do you think here? So you're watching The Rage Carry 2. We have Sue Snell show up, who you had to look up exactly who she was. And then you're seeing flashbacks to that first movie. Like, were you feeling at all like that first movie? Like, it took you a while to get into that first movie. Is there a point when you actually start getting into this? Are you into this at this point? Where are you at? As much as it's, you know, and we're nitpicking as we go through, but I'm not minding this movie. Like, even the little things I bump up against, I'm going along with it. I'm finding it fairly comfortable of a watch. It might be because it's simplistic, like it's not challenging anything in the way, you know, that Carrie would, but it's, yeah, I mean, I'm I'm kind of going along with it here. Having a good time makes me a, a psychopath, but <laughs> when I'm watching this, I'm like, is this really any sleazier than something like, I don't know, Urban Legend or The Faculty? Kind of in that ballpark, if you ask me, where it, it, it kind of knows what it is, and I'm glad that there's no really no pretense, but there's actually, I'm going to save the ultimate comparison for my final thoughts, because I think there's a, it's another 90s movie that this movie is the better version of, if you ask me. We see the points being tallied up. As Jesse says, he's thinking of nobody to a girl still looking for a date to Mark's party. More black and white as Rachel uses her powers again. So is this black and white to show when she uses her powers, when she has the tendency to use the powers? Seeing all this black and white was, I don't know, it was... Again, I, I just I, I bump up against that. Yeah, I, I, it, I see it, her it doing this. Out. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. It really does take you out because it's not that in a way like it doesn't focus on her powers when she's 
doing it. Like the black and white, it doesn't always happen when she is using powers. It's not a one-to-one correlation. And if that's mm-hmm. what she was going for, you have to punctuate when she's using her powers with it. Especially at the end, you know, you would have to split yeah. screen and do a black and white, you know, the same way you have the split screen and red from last time. But there's times where it's black and white. She's not using it. There's times where she uses it and the color doesn't go to black and white. So other than trying to get a 90s artistic kind of feel with it, I don't see a purpose. So we get some heat wannabe background music as <laughs> Walter, oh <my> Wal- <laughs> Walter the dog. He gets away, and then he gets run over. Oh, my God. I love him. That's the crazy part. This dog somehow survived. Yes. Yes, he survived the entire movie. A year later, nonetheless. For for the record, I took this as a pot shot at Pet Cemetery. I did, Uh, too. Maybe. In that movie, the cat was literally a pussy and didn't survive getting hit by a truck. (laughs) Whereas this dog somehow does without having to be buried. I can't believe they show the dog get hit. You, you never yeah. show it. You know, you I see know. the dog run out, it cuts, you get the burp while you're looking at somebody else's face. You actually see the wheel fucking hit something. I know. I turn away every single time. Oh. So. so Jesse happens to be on the scene, and they go to a 24-hour vet with neon signs all around it. <laughs> all right. This, that, is this a vet or a brothel? Like... Yeah, what exactly is this here? The vet says that Walter's pretty banged up, but he's going to make it. So they then head out to a diner, which is always my first stop after a traumatizing visit to the vet, especially when my white sweater is soaked with blood. Mm. <laughs> As Jesse reveals that Shirley Manson rocks. And yeah, man, garbage. <laughs> <laughs> if I could have written a line in this movie, that was it, though. It's almost like they slapped me. Adam, you paying attention? We're going to make a garbage reference here. They're going on tour with the land and it's the summer, yo. You paid attention? I totally thought of you when I saw that, too. Let's <laughs> remember, this is 1999. Yep. I guess you could say the world is not enough for Rachel in this movie. <laughs> oh, God. Oh, Bravo. God. No, we're not getting that discussion again. It is kind of weird, though, that we're watching this because Garbage had another album come out in June. They're still around. They're still making music to this day. They're like Stephen King, they just they, they keep going. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> They're going to be in town here this August, or September. I'll be there. So Rachel shocks Jesse on her way out of the car, and I don't mean figuratively, I mean literally. He's causing <laughs> a spark to develop there. This is the way they're showing... You know, Cache, she's showing these little hints of these powers with the black and white and everything. But that's a big complaint I have with this movie. In the last movie, we saw Carrie try to figure out what exactly is happening to her. This girl, she does these things, and we're going to have a scene with her and Amy Irving later where she does it. And she's almost in denial. What exactly is going on with this chick and her powers? Yeah, and she's not so much of a shut-in as Carrie White was that she could not or would not experiment with them or try to get more info. We hear that Rachel's mom is at Arkham, which... I like to remind people, was actually an H.P. Lovecraft thing long before it was a Batman thing. Thank you. I think that's what they're playing off of here. Well, doesn't King have Arkham in more than one? Doesn't he have it in the King universe? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But yeah, it, 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 it but Arkham... Rock. Yeah. I mean, Arkham was directly... It's Lovecraft. Mm-hmm. And Sue reveals that she tried helping somebody in a similar state of mind that Rachel's in now. Did she, though? <laughs> I mean, I guess she did, but <laughs> that didn't work out too well. Rachel loses interest in what Sue is telling her as her telepathic powers knock off a mug. 
Eric then gets interrogated by the police as Jesse asks Rachel to meet him at the diner. So here we go. We're going right back to the fucking diner again. Sure, this doesn't take place in the 50s. I'm telling you. <laughs> Meanwhile, Eric is suspended as the sheriff finds the pick and he suspends him for statutory rape. So they decide to do some quote unquote damage control. So this, this is what's going to set these guys off. This girl wronged them instead of the other way around. So that's why they're going after him. So again, it's just an inverse, right guys? Yeah. Rachel gets a knock on the door and as she explores in black and white again and flashbacks happen, the phone rings. And of course, there's somebody with a Donald Duck voice asking her what her favorite scary movie is. I mean, Matt, I... didn't we cover this series last year? Why are we watching a Scream movie now? <laughs> and this goes to write what Matt was talking about at the beginning of this podcast. This movie was right in that wave of that late 90s horror that Scream had started. And my God, I mean, we have a direct reference to it here. I can't believe they went that direct. Yeah. Yeah, like, it's the line verbatim. Just because you change it to Donald Duck for some unannounced reason, I don't understand what, what Donald Duck has to do with the telekinesis. I guess he psychically <laughs> beat the shit out of his nephews or something, but uh, just a, a lot of decisions in this movie feel like they were made with no real purpose. A lot yeah. of it feels very calculated as far as changing something, some things around, changing the genders, but so much of it just feels like spontaneous screenwriting. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Rachel's foster parents, they show up angry, and Rachel gets more threatening calls. We hear Tracy is... <laughs> I love this line. I'm sorry. i got to pause. We hear that Tracy is the caviar to Rachel's cheese whiz. <laughs> <laughs> Great line. I don't know, Matt, after what you just said about the screenplay, I think these kind of lines, they're kind of clever. It's very 90s, but I was laughing at some of this. Were you well, laughing at all, Matt, or are you just laughing at it? No, because every time I hear Cheese Whiz, I have, Viet I have Vietnam flashbacks to a camping trip where we <laughs> hunt for 10 days in the middle of New Mexico. And because you're so hungry, you'll eat anything. I never want to see Cheese Whiz ever again in my life. I hated it before that. And God... Even if I see a bottle of whipped cream, I kind of cringe because I presumably think it's cheese whiz. Wow. <laughs> so Jesse, once again, tries to ask Rachel Allen a date. So we're right around the halfway point of the movie, boys. I don't know. Is it dragging for anybody else? I, I felt at this point in the first Carrie, and I know I'm making comparisons, but come on. You're calling yourself Carrie, too. We're having no choice but to talk about it. Who doesn't compare The Empire Strikes Back to A New Hope? I like, do in the sense that it's inferior to A New Hope, but... <laughs> all right. But that first movie had, you know, it had montages, and De Palma did things to kind of speed that movie up, sometimes literally. Is this thing dragging for anybody else? Because it's kind of dragging for me at this point. I'm just waiting for it to get to the big sequence that I know is going to be the climax of the movie, because that's kind of what it's sold on. If you're going to do a Carrie mm -hmm. movie, there's going to be some kind of literal bloodbath, perhaps figuratively. So I feel like they're just kind of wasting time for, the, for this whole middle section. And there's also one of the things that the first Carrie movie benefits from is the home dynamic with the mother. There's really none of that in this movie with the Foster family. No. They might as well be um, John Connor's foster parents where they're there for two seasons. Oh, yeah. I agree with Matt. Like, you know the ending is going to come. It's going to be an explosive ending. No pun intended. They show it in the trailer. So, mm -hmm. yeah, you're kind of waiting okay, you know, how long until we get here? How's it going to happen? However, where I felt the first one had trouble sucking me in, it may be just because I've seen so much of this type of, I don't, know, I don't even know if horror is the right word, really. I mean, it's not a horror movie. But, yeah, you know what? It goes down like cheese whiz. It ain't healthy, but after walking for 10 days in a hike, you'll, you'll, you'll have some. So I, I'm, not, I, I'm not having a bad time. I'm really not. Wow. 
Jesse, to me, though, he, he comes off as a whipped pretty boy as he just keeps defending Rachel to his football friends, you know? <laughs> oh, yeah. I don't buy this guy no football player whatsoever. Like, this is... No. He feels like the guy that they pay to do their homework. <laughs> yeah. You know, he Great is, call. he's the same character he is in Mallrats. He's freaking... He's, he's way out of his league here. Mallrats? I, I get his brother confused. I don't know which one's which. I don't either, and if I mixed them up, uh, well. <laughs> you know, one, I know one was in Mallrats, one... Yeah, because the one that was in Mallrats was in 7th Heaven. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I get those guys confused, too. We then get a Blade Runner-type test as Sue's snow globe explodes <laughs> out of Rachel's frustrations, and she once again flashes back to the first film. I'll say it again, guys. If you flash back to that more classic movie, it makes yours look pale in comparison. Every time you do this, you're reminding people of how inferior your movie is. Yeah. Yep. Rachel tells Jesse that she wishes she could be one of the shiny, happy people, <laughs> bringing out another <laughs> reference, as they get out of the rain and Rachel lectures him on finding his own path before saying word, <laughs> because word was the huge thing in the 90s. God, is, you know, Adam sent us a text earlier in the week saying, God, this movie is so fucking 90s. And man, it, it's coming out in spades in this fucking thing. <laughs> yeah. What also makes it more 90s is Jesse is with her for like two dates and he's already in love with her. <laughs> like He's completely <laughs> head over heels with this chick. Well, there's a reason that the lesson during the English class is Romeo and Juliet. That, that, yeah. is, not, that is not a subtle point of comparison whatsoever. Good point. Nope. Rachel reveals that she's a virgin and that she wants her first to be very special. Ugh. So then Sue does the most... It never is. What's that? <laughs> Spoiler alert, it never is. Yeah. Never is. Especially if there's a night. That's another podcast, boys. So then... <laughs> well, we're already talking about whipped cream, cheese whiz, my little... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so then Sue does the most outlandish thing the script includes. She goes to see Rachel's mother. You know, you already have Irving in this movie... Do we have to see this, especially in a movie that clocks in a tad under 105 minutes? This was the stupidest part of the movie, I thought, was her going to the asylum to see her mom. Yeah, and this is the one part, this whole tip with her parentage feels like the most desperate attempt to create mm-hmm. some connective tissue to the first one. Like, this is the worst example of, like, taking a spec script and modifying it, although... I burst out laughing when Sue takes her to the wreckage of the school, mm-hmm. and it's and there are parts of it that are still on fire. Yeah, it's been twenty <laughs> fucking years. Like, yeah, it's been twenty-three <laughs> years. <laughs> so we do learn that Carrie and Rachel's dad, he he pretty much got around. This guy, who knows how many Carries are roaming around out there? <laughs> how much this dude was fucking doing checks? And that was probably supposed to be the point if this worked. That's a good point. You Very know. good point. I was like, is this how we're going to get a crossover with Children of the Corn? Or like this guy was just purposely trying to create a village of children who will take an uprising and he'll conquer the world? I was struck when they were mentioning the father and flat out name drops him and his name is Ralph. And that's a cover for the devil. I literally took it as this was the devil that impregnated her mom. Oh, interesting. So you guys are reading themes and themes I didn't even think about. Or it could have been fucking Palpatine, where it's just, oh, there was no father. <laughs> <laughs> so Sue Plus takes a goth... An evil Skywalker. <laughs> so, so Sue takes a goth-inspired Rachel to the side of the burned-down school, which, as Adam says, parts are still burning. Why would this not be cleaned up? <laughs> no shit. You I built a new school, but did yeah. not bother to tear down the other one. Nope. Yeah. 
we're trying so hard to put that connective tissue in this movie because, again, this thing started off as just a different spec script. This wasn't even a part of the Carrie universe, I guess you could say, before the studio got a hold of it. They're trying so hard, and that's what makes this thing elongated to almost an hour and 50 minutes, and it bogs it down to me. It, it doesn't work, what they're trying to do. No, though I'll give her credit for Cat to come in, you know, on s- such a short end at the end of this and to be able to pull off. I'd be interested to see what it would have been, you know, if the original vision stuck around or if she would have been able to flush this out a little bit more from the get go, as opposed mm-hmm. to being a hired gun after so much was done and changed and then thrown up to hurry up by the end of the millennium. Well, if you want to find that out, Adam, just listen to the podcast that we did six years ago. <laughs> <laughs> So Sue reveals to Rachel that she has what's called telekinesis, saying that they can take her to the same place Charlie McGee from Firestar is located. She didn't really, but that's the book I'm reading, so I decided to go ahead and just include that in this review. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe that's why the school's still on fire. (laughs) Yeah, no shit. We cut to Eric's dad getting his son out of trouble. So, of course, the big jock's dad, you know, he's a high-power lawyer who can get him out of trouble. Jesse asks Rachel to the game so that she can bring him luck in front of the scouts as Tracy is just shown seething. We find out that Tracy is a Melrose Place super bitch. (laughs) I'm sorry. Every single 90s reference I think I have written down here. (laughs) Am I the only one who thinks, this is the the one with the glasses, right, Monica? Yeah. Am I the only one who thinks she looks like 90s Alicia Silverstone? God damn it. I have that written down and circled. (laughs) They... Not only does she look like her, I swear they dressed her just like her character in Clueless. They probably did. I got more of like a 90s Laura Flynn Boyle uh, when you look at her face with those glasses on. Yeah, I mean. Was there enough decade for Laura Flynn Boyle besides the 90s? (laughs) You're not wrong. (laughs) When did Ben and Black 2 come out? That was it. Uh, 2002. All right, that was the end. You ruined my joke. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry, that's Gary's role. Mark tells Jesse to make sure that Rachel's at the party because he wanted to make sure to make things up to her. Jesse picks up Rachel for a date, and she says that she's in for the party. She's going to go ahead and go. And, of course, here's when she loses her virginity. In slow motion, of course. (laughs) Jesse says he loves her, which makes me wonder which one really lost it here (laughs) as there's a figure revealed in the window. And it's a cabin as well. Like, it's playing with, like, slasher tropes. Yeah, absolutely. Like my parents' cabin. Like, isn't that Friday, the the one with Corey Feldman? It's, like, in their parents' house. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, four. Part four. Yeah. We cut to Rachel's house as she's grounded from going to the game. And all the football players shave their heads, causing an Alien 3 effect of me not being able to tell one from the other as this movie moves along. Gotta hate when fucking characters do this shit. You know what makes it worse? Unlike What's Alien that? 3, they're all white and they're all men. Yeah. At least Alien 3, you got Sigourney Weaver and Charles, uh... Oh, what's his fucking name? Charles, Charles Dutton. Charles Dutton, that's right. This yeah. All look like, they all look like Brian Urlacher. <laughs> <laughs> Is there anything to make a group of assholes look like bigger assholes and make them all look like skinheads as you get towards the finale? You're not kidding. That's uh, a damn good point. And also, just because you know one of the players doesn't mean you can run directly onto the field at their <laughs> bed. <laughs> Why, Matt? Have you tried that? Actually, yes, I have. And I was escorted off the property immediately. <laughs> uh, 
so Sue breaks Rachel's mom out of her quarters <laughs> using a piece of gum. Mm. Yes, this is real. <laughs> <laughs> the, the bubble gum and the, oh, please go get my purse trick. Yeah. <laughs> This prison breakout, James Bond is just shaking his head. You know what it is? This is Arkham Asylum. This exactly explains oh, yeah. why, yeah. why uh, Batman and rogues get back out. It's every Arkham. Rachel's listening to the game on her headphones, and when Jesse is incapacitated by a hit, she leaves her post to go to the game. She makes it just in time to see Jesse become the hero, and Rachel is given a ride to the party by girls going to the party who share their makeup with her. So now... Rachel's being accepted, much like Carrie in that first film. She's being accepted, right, guys? Yep. And that's yep. that's what movie, she thinks. It's all building to a big swerve. Yep. Tracy picks up Jesse, and all the plan is starting to come together, though last time there was a forbidding sense of dread and suspense over the proceedings here. I kind of just want it to happen. I see it coming. Like, we don't have any buckets above heads or anything. I'm just wanting it right now. What about you guys? Are you guys kind of itching for it, or are you guys feeling like the suspense from last week? I would feel it if they didn't show them outside videotaping the consummation. Yeah. Great point. Yeah. Or if I felt like London was actually setting her up and that he might, you know, be a villain at the end of this, which would have been a good way to go with it. But that is my complete problem with this movie is the fact that this guy is such a fucking lush. If you made him to be that sadistic where he was the the one in charge of the proceedings the entire time, that would make this finale work for me, honestly, once we get to it. Um, But I don't have any sense of dread because he's not a part of it. He's not even there. He's once again, he's gullible because this chick is fucking changing clothes in front of him. And he's like, it's time to go. It's time to go. All he has is Rachel on his mind. This is lame because... This guy is just a tool. And even that, no, 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 no. Okay, I could be in high school in a relationship, and I was. Somebody else takes me over, looks like that, changes in front of me and says, hey, let's go. Yeah, you're going to do I'm sorry. (laughs) No, it doesn't matter. Especially with Rachel, I know. He loves her, which, no. Nah, no. From here, it's just, hurry up and let's get to some bloodshed. Yeah. In a movie full of telekinesis and pyrotechnics at a school that would make even the X-Men shiver in fear, that's the most unbelievable thing in this entire movie. <laughs> Very good point. And I, thought, Rachel, I would assume she was going to be topless. I was actually disappointed because I thought they'd throw it back to a topless scene. Jesus, Adam. Wow. In, a, in a movie like this that's going to go there, that you don't actually do it was surprising. I think I'm going to have to break out the patented Woody Allen impression and have a conversation. <laughs> Rachel is getting apologized to left and right and asked for a margarita as Jesse is stuck waiting, waiting for Tracy. We cut to Rachel actually having a good time, but there's no bliss involved here as they give her Lisa's diary and show the tape of Rachel and Jesse together. And so this is when everything inside her just kind of builds and builds. And now we have it. This is when the telekinesis freakout starts. This whole thing of this glass exploding, funny story about this, and I'm pretty sure uh, Shay told this story on the podcast that we did. She had to do this three times, and the first time she winced. And so they're like, no, you can't wince, even though there's glass coming at you from every which way. You cannot wince. So the second time, they didn't get the rig right. Third time, she was stood up. Everything went right. But this glass was digging into her legs, digging into her side. And she was bleeding after this scene was cut. And that's the take they use in this movie. So when you see that glass going against her, she actually was cut while filming this scene. 
You know what I like about this, though? I like the addition, and I know a lot of people fret against this. I saw words online where people really hated when the tattoo grows and when she starts unleashing, but I thought that was cool. I really dug that. It's cool, the, the hentai shit in this, but Adam's going to laugh when I say this. The fact that she made a movie called Poison Ivy, and then in this movie... She's got Poison Ivy-esque tattoos. <laughs> yeah. That would, make, right. that would make Uma Thurman blush. <laughs> I, I, I do like before. when it's there and the dude reaches out to her arm and it's first started, the heart is beating and it's mm-hmm. pulsing. Like, that actually creeped me the fuck out. I didn't mind it growing. I thought it was kind of cool. I don't think it looks good is the problem. But I had no issue with it, like, growing and wrapping around her. You know, I think it may be something there about, a, I don't know, a flower coming into bloom or she's, you know, mm-hmm. covered in thorns. But I, I just don't think it looked good. But I like what they were going for with it. Glass shatters, doors slam, and we have a monster on our hands yet again. We get CDs used as weapons, a la Hellraiser 3, Adam. Maybe we'll get to that series soon. Say, I was um, thinking of that, and I come in peace. Yes, I come in peace, yes! <laughs> you motherfuckers stole both of my references. <laughs> I referenced both of those properties within the past, like, year, so fuck both of I will say, you know, going off of things that I wasn't expecting, I was not expecting Sue to die in this movie. I was not expecting her to get it at this door. Oh, um, she gets it, too. Jesus. Yeah. But I, I have to ask, what exactly was she hoping to accomplish by coming here? <laughs> that, is, that is a big problem with this finale. Why is she here with her mother? At this frat party, by the way. I don't know. Did that throw anyone else off? Nah. <laughs> All right. Well, I guess re- I'm the only one. Reasons. We get people being set on fire. Mark grabs a spear gun and a flare gun as Rachel walks around. They stand right by the pool. I did like the girl's eyes bursting through her glasses. I thought that was cool. That was was awesome. But the... Oh, it was badass. The fucking harpoon guns. Oh, Oh, yes. Made me think of, well, castration notwithstanding. I was like, oh my god, we have another Fast and Furious tie-in because they use those fucking harpoon guns in the first movie to steal (laughs) shit. That's right. I thought of Piranha. The remake, when they do that in in that movie. I think it's Jerry O'Connell who gets it in that movie. It's either Jerry O'Connell or Eli Roth, one of those two. Yeah. I do think there's some good stuff in this finale, including her getting shot with the flare gun and the sheer claustrophobia I was feeling as the dude was drowning under the pool lid. That is a huge fear of mine. Mm-hmm. I, uh, that lid closes over you. I'm just, I've had nightmares like that, and I think everybody has, where like you're stuck underneath this and you can't get out of it. Like You're pounding, 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 and there's no hope. That is pretty good stuff. You know, They're doing different things in this finale, which I like. If that's scary to you, don't watch the movie 12 Feet Deep which came out a couple of years ago. It's about two people who get trapped in an Olympic-sized swimming pool. Yeah, I'm good. Yeah. Like, no thanks. <laughs> yeah, that movie will be to you what Jesus Camp was to me, where it's like I didn't sleep at night for weeks. So Rachel's mom somehow finds her, says that she's not her little girl. I, you know what? I will say, as badly as this is written, I do like how Burgle plays this. I think this character could have been so much more had she just been written better? Because I think Burgle has the chops in this movie. I really do. I think she does a pretty good job. No, I do think she looks pretty good, that she does a good job with it. You know what I liked was the callback to Mama. Yeah. That, that suddenly she's calling out Mama, and that was specifically like a nod mm-hmm. to basic. Yeah, it's it's a neat little callback because you gotta you got to have some kind of wrap-up in this movie. It just doesn't feel like it doesn't belong in this kind of movie. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's a little bit harder to elicit sympathy for this character than it is for Carrie. She's also justified in her revenge uh, to a certain mm-hmm. capacity. Yeah, she takes it to an extreme, but how upset can you really be if you're the mother? It's like, call it a spade a spade. Mm-hmm. So here's Jesse, the save of the day. Tracy is hit, and Rachel accuses Jesse of lying to her. But despite her anger, while the house is collapsing, she takes a fall and then saves him. Why? She read his mind. I don't fucking know. She's a, she's mm-hmm. she couldn't because yeah. there's a difference between a telekinetic and a telepath to get really nerdy. But again, oh boy, all them shave their heads. I'm like, maybe this is a Charles Xavier origin story. One of one's got to be paralyzed. She cripples him, and that's why he's all fucking pissed off and shaved all the time. <laughs> You know, there you go. The girl with, you know, girl with glasses, with glass in her eyes becomes a female Cyclops. There you go. It's, it's all working out. Oh, my God. Well, who's the guy that gets castrated? What would he be? He'd also be Cyclops because he's <laughs> got the balls. <laughs> I got the balls, yeah. We cut to one year later at King's University. Get it, guys? King's King. University? <laughs> Jesse is in college with Walter at his side when in steps Rachel. Huh? They kiss. And then she crumbles like dust in front of him. And she's still in the mirror behind him as the camera faces the black. This is a bad effect done at the 11th hour because yep. their original ending involved a snake coming out of her mouth. Yes, that is true. A la the serpent in the rainbow. But they didn't like the effect, the way that looked, so they had to settle for this. What do you guys feel about this final stinger here? This is the most egregious example of them trying to tie this to the original by copying the last minute jump scare. Mm-hmm. Oh my god, do I fucking hate this ending so much. Uh, effect notwithstanding, that doesn't bother me, because I saw a little movie called The Haunting in 1999 that also came out that year, which has oh, yeah. considerably worse special effects. So I'm not going to knock this one, considering she had two weeks of prep time before the cameras started fucking rolling. But it's not scary. Again, ripping off other movies, this feels like a Nightmare on Elm Street stinger. Sure does. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I mean, I don't think it's a surprise. Of all people who survive, I, I really don't need fucking him here at the end. But yeah, when Rachel goes in, I'm like, okay, she's either going to... It's clear she was going to do something. I thought she was going to do something to him or something else. So it's not a scare because there's there's no surprise. There's no there there like there is at the end of Carrie. It should be said, at this point, Stephen King has been in the stratosphere for over 20 years. And given how we're doing these movies out of order, we aren't following the sequential movie years as we usually do. For reasons why we do that, go ahead and listen to the first podcast. But this is 1999, and King was on the downward swing at this point. We had some TV movies with him. He did some TV specials. He did a miniseries, which we're going to cover by the end of this year. But he wasn't really that big in the stratosphere. So... What I took this as, this ending, Matt, you got the first carry. I got Pet Cemetery because this is almost note for note from that first Pet Cemetery movie. And we're going to get to that movie in six or seven years. But <laughs> <laughs> that's exactly what I thought of. All right, boys. That is The Rage Carry 2. Wow, this was a much more interesting discussion than I was expecting, honestly, about this little horror film from 1999. Scale of 1 to 10, what do we give the Rage Carry to? Matt, sir, you go ahead and unleash your rage. You know, with all the shit that this movie had to overcome, two decades plus of a gap, a director who was kind of thrown in last minute, a spec script that was changed to the nth degree, I think it's a decent follow-up, all things considered. I don't think this movie warrants the hate it gets from a lot of circles. It's a product of post-scream, and it's a product of its time, but... 
looking at it now, I think the feminist undertones do kind of give it some more clout than it did back then. But as I mentioned, I wanted to compare this to The Craft, which also came out in the 90s. Uh, the reason why I compare it to The Craft is that The Craft is a movie that I think has also dated horribly, and it has a really insidious message that the only people who can be trusted with power are the white elite, basically, and all the people who, once they get power and they're oppressed, will just be unfit to rule to wield it. This movie is kind of arguing the same thing. Might come from a good place, but absolute power corrupts absolutely, sort of what they're arguing. And it's, it's a little muddled, but God, that, that last scene just, it's laughable, and it really outstays its welcome. But I gotta say, this movie culminates with the party from hell. And it's a little bit more graphic, considerably more graphic than a lot of certainly King movies until this time. Definitely, definitely got a bigger body count and stuff like Scream. So if you're into that kind of stuff, it's worth the wait. But all things being equal, if you ask me if this is a good movie, I, I can't staunchly say yet. I will just say that it's perfectly adequate, and I give it points for trying, because God knows the 90s was not a good period for Stephen King. There were some good highs, and I'll say this, I like this movie better than the other movie that he made, which we'll cover in a decade, The Green Mile, which also came out in 1999. That movie bored me to tears and almost put me in a psychic coma. I will watch this movie five times over before I will ever watch The Green Mile ever again, except ten years from now when we cover that movie. So I'm going to land on, I'm going to land smack dab in the middle. I'm going to land at a five. five. It is, to quote the Irishman, it is what it is. All right. Adam, first time watch for you. Can you go higher than a five? Well, let's see. You know what else was coming out around the time of this movie? The Sixth Sense came out yeah. in 1999. Bride of Chucky came out about nine months before this movie. The Blair Witch Project came out this exact same year. So did House on Haunted Hill, Deep Blue Sea. This year was like rife with these kind of movies. I still know what you did last summer came out only a few months before this movie. Disturbing Behavior came out a year before. Halloween H2O came out a year before. Sleepy Hollow came out the same year. It's kind of amazing how many movies that feel in the same vein really came out this late 90s. And I'm talking 98, 99. You go back into 94, 95, 96, 97 and increase that tenfold. Shit, Idle Hands, I think, came out the same year. Jesus. Um, I completely agree with Matt's assessment, especially comparing it to The Craft. And I think they wanted to, dramatically. Um, I think there was a supposed to feel that way, but without going into the extremes. I walked into this movie ready to just kind of harumph my way through it with a frown on my face. And I found that that didn't happen. I found that it was kind of a smooth watch. It was like many that I saw before. But I don't mind those. I, I can enjoy the faculty. I can enjoy I like what you did last summer. When I'm in the mood for that kind of movie, I'm in the mood for it. And this goes in that vein. It's not a great carry movie, but it's a perfectly acceptable mid-late 90s teen horror movie. And I think it hits on that. I do like the connections to it. I like having Snell back. I think it worked out fine that way. I like Rachel. I find her an affable character that I actually connect to in a way that I didn't connect with Carrie until the later half of that movie, as we discussed before. However, this movie, where Carrie, that once we got to prom, or this time it's a party, once we got to prom that movie, it had me in its clutches and it did not let me go from there on out. Once we get to the party here, then it kind of slips away from me. So kind of the way that we talked about how this is an inverse of last week, my feelings are an inverse as well, uh, because it lost me at different times. But for the majority, I'm perfectly satisfied to sit back and watch. If this was on TV... I would not be rushing for the remote. 
depending on where it was, yeah, sure, leave it on for a little bit. It's not horrible. It's not great, but it's definitely not a pariah in King's World. And I actually, and I wrote it down as soon as I got done, because I wonder if I'm going to be influenced or not, and I'm going to stick with it. I'm right where Matt is. I'm right on five. Don't love it. Don't hate it. Perfectly acceptable. Five on ten. Five on ten from the newbie, Mr. Adam Bunch. Wow. You know, I scoured the Internet because I, I, I like looking for keen quotes to show exactly how he feels about these movies because they're usually pretty entertaining to talk about. And for the life of me, I can't find a thing about what he says about this movie. I'm assuming it's nothing too good. You have to step out of the King verse when you watch this movie. Yes, there are references to that first Carrie movie, but you watch this, it's not like we're seeing a continuation of that story. With the exception of Sue Snell, you get enough backstory from her to realize where she's coming from. This is not something you have to see the first movie in order to watch. And I, I think that's what kind of what they were going on when it came to this movie. They were, they were going on horror being a big thing back then. So they all gathered up and they said, what else can we bring teenagers in with? Oh, let's just bring this old King property and turn this script in to it and i look at it from that perspective and i have a pretty decent time with this i think the finale with what shay had to work with is pretty damn good there are a lot of things in that finale that it's not going to shatter any gore records or anything but i think there are some things in that that are really entertaining i think the movie as a whole is entertaining now is it a time capsule absolutely the late 90s this movie is just an encapsulation of that entire fucking set of films we've talked about them all on this podcast but of the slew of scream ripoffs that came out and the horror films that came out in the wake of scream reawakening the horror genre i think this is right up there too and i have this written down it is the same exact score as my two colleagues i'm doubting this is going to happen very often but this is a five for me as well it's (laughs) not going to set anything on fire like carrie does at the end of this movie you're not going to walk out saying that was a great great movie but grab yourself a tub of popcorn sit down put your phone away and just put this sucker on it's it's a time capsule you know you're not going to talk about the nuances of the story you're not going to talk about the great kubrickian shots that are in this but you are going to say hey that was a pretty good little horror film so yeah five out of ten for me as well wow i don't think there's ever been three sets of compliments that encapsulated three five out of ten scores (laughs) so i think that's pretty remarkable never would have thought that coming into this no absolutely not all right so from here the Rage Carry 2 comes out, as I mentioned in this podcast, not exactly a hit. They shelved this for a grand total of three years, boys, before a gentleman by the name of Brian Fuller reawakened it with a miniseries based on that 200-page Carry book. That will be talked about next week. Matt, what do you remember? Give a little tease about what you remember about next week's film. I'm probably going to be like Guy Pearce and Memento trying to put together the pieces of what I actually remember from watching the Brian Fuller miniseries because as of now, my recollection is minimal at best. I know I've seen it, but if you asked me to give a review, I would probably be accused of plagiarism because I would probably be saying shit that does not happen in the movie or just copy and pasting my comments about the 76 movie. Who fucking knows at this point? It's been about as long gap or possibly longer than what I did for this particular recording. Adam, have you heard anything at all about this miniseries that you're going to be watching this week? Yeah, I heard that I have to watch it to discuss it next week. (laughs) 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 I had no idea that they did a 
TV miniseries. Of, I knew that it was remade a couple years ago, probably more than a couple now. I had no idea this existed until you fucking told me I had to do this. (laughs) Adam was thinking the leg of the Carrie podcast was literally going to be Carrie with Sissy Spacek and Carrie with Chloe Grace Moretz. And then when he he texted me and said, you mean there are four fucking movies in this? I said, yeah. (laughs) And you're going to find this with King. Like there are legs upon legs upon legs that you never even saw. Though I will say, and this is something that's going to come up later, is I remember having a discussion a long time ago about me enjoying King TV miniseries more than I enjoyed a King movie. So we'll see if that happens here. I doubt it, but I'm not closed off to it. All right. And me, I did see this. I think I saw the second part when it was originally aired. And then I waited... Um, a number of years later and Encore used to play this a lot and I think I watched it one time when it was on Encore and I haven't picked it up again since I did order the DVD for it and I have it sitting right here and I will be watching it for this podcast it'll be the first time I've seen it in god probably since that remake came out eight years ago at this point so that's what we have coming up next week boys I can't thank you guys enough and until next week when we review Carrie again podcasts are 15 seconds of squishing noises Thanks, guys. Why didn't you tell me, Mama? The Binge Aftertaste is produced by Garrett and Matt. <laughs> the boy! just a test that will let me know how to help you better you're wasting your time just answer the statements true or false okay edited by garrett don't get all pissy i'm only trying to be nice you don't give a shit about carrie white and everybody knows it You're with me on this, right? Voice narration done by Adam. They're really good. We wouldn't give you a hard time if we didn't like you. We could have had them by the balls. I can see your dirty pillows. I like you. You guys ready? Uh, a little, little excited to be honest because Adam's message about I watched yeah. both of these, one of them was a slog. Yeah, sittings. I'm like <laughs> I have no idea which one because I have a feeling. <laughs> right. I've known this guy since high school. I have a feeling. I know. They're all gonna laugh at you.
these rebels, it, it was voluntary on their part, and I see that with this with this main character, who I swear to God, she looks like if Asa Butterfield put on a black wig. <laughs> oh, wow. Man, my dick just got confused. <laughs> Adam? I, uh, I don't know what to say now, because, yeah, I kind of found her hot. <laughs> They're all going to laugh at you! I didn't know she was married to Spielberg. That's funny. What, was he married to her before or after Kate Capshaw? He was, no, it was before. before. He was married to her. They met her on the set of Carrie, actually. And they were married, yeah, right until right before he married uh, Capshaw. It was 84, 85. So he was married to her from like 77 through 84. Yeah. So, and he had to give a lot of money to her in that thing. I mean, their divorce is amongst one of the most expensive in Hollywood history still to this day. A lot of that was to keep her mouth shut for a lot of the stuff that probably would have given Spielberg a pretty big black guy at that time. Yeah, but yeah, he was know. a big womanizer. He was, and he's oh, and he's huge. admitted to that. He's yeah. admitted to that. You well, know, was, when it come... Wasn't that the case? I think I remember this, where like the judge vacated a prenup or something that was on a napkin. Yep. Yes. Oh, oh, that that makes <laughs> yeah. so much more sense. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say she must have made like a hundred million dollars off off of Spielberg. That's why he kept make, he made uh he made nineteen forty one and shit because he was all depressed. <laughs> so I got no money. <laughs> well, you know, Spielberg chose poorly. <laughs> Four times I was gonna get out the fucking line. <laughs> yeah, Spielberg, one of these bullies was in Saving Private Ryan. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes, and then one of them was in one of the Fast and Furious movies as well. <laughs> the one that sleeps with Mina Savari? That's the one who yeah. was in Fast and Furious, one of them. Who raised uh, Lucas Black. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's, that series just keeps coming back, doesn't it? So, well, so not much, like, much like that, this movie's all about family at the end of the day. <laughs> so. They're all going to laugh at you! She won't budge, even proclaiming herself to be I put a duke here but that's not it oh a dyke that's what it is that was my autocorrect I'm sorry she won't budge I that's the dude that's the way my autocorrect my autocorrect I I thought you were trying to censor yourself no no I was about to say do you realize what website we work for I know well I was pausing because that's what it has on my notes but I realized that that's what my autocorrect turned it into You know what? The right, let me say that again. God damn it, guys! <laughs> she won't budge, even proclaiming herself to be a dyke. They're all gonna laugh at you. A '90s artistic kind of feel with it. I don't see a purpose. Yeah, I'm sort of in identical foot, identical footsteps with Adam. I don't know what the fuck I'm trying to say at this point. I'm running, <laughs> I run out of metaphors for crazy. <laughs> They're all gonna laugh at you. So we do learn that Carrie and Rachel's dad, he, he pretty much got around. This guy, who knows how many Carries are roaming around out there? <laughs> how much this dude was fucking doing checks. And that was probably supposed to be the point if this worked. That's a good point. You Very know. good point. Yeah. Now, I, I, was, like, I, was, I was struck by... Go ahead. I was just going to say... They're all going to laugh at you! They all look like Brian Urlacher. <laughs> 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 you made me spit. You made me spit beer from my nose with that one. They're all gonna laugh at you. 
You've been listening to the Binge Media Podcast Network at BingeMedia.net. Support the show by donating on Patreon at Patreon.com slash BingeMedia. Subscribe to us on iTunes. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And don't forget... Shut up! I'm wasted. <laughs> <laughs>